Merry Christmas, live stream people. Merry Christmas, real people in the room. We sure appreciate and love you. Um, just thank you for bearing with us. Christmas. I think like four years ago when we did Christmas, we didn't even like sing Christmas songs, and we kind of forgot. I'm saying the royal we, like me, I kind of forgot about Christmas. We were rolling through some other passages and stuff, and I know, how do you forget that? I don't know. So we're, we're growing up here as a church and getting our act together. I mean, like I'm wearing a jacket, Ben and Dan wore jackets. We're just, we're getting better at celebrating Christmas as a church. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. So Merry Christmas. Welcome. So a lot of Christmas parties, I'll give you a conversational piece you should not use. Um, a conversational piece you should not use for all these mini Christmas parties you're going to is, tell me your birth story. That's, a, that's an awkward exchange. Every time my, my friend's wives start talking about babies and births and what happened and stuff, I leave the room or try to awkwardly change the conversation. I have, my own kid's birth was traumatic enough. I am not looking forward to uh, hearing about someone else's kid's traumatic birth. It is just brutal what fathers have to go through to bring life into this. <laughs> Welcome. Merry Christmas. All right, so today we're looking at the birth story of Jesus. Before we jump into that, I had a New Year's resolution last January that I would send and receive more memes, that I would gain weight and I would watch more Netflix. And so here is a meme one of our leaders posted into our leaders group me thread where we communicate it was supposed to be a broadcasting communication thread, but it's becoming more like a haha funny meme thread for our 50-some leaders in our church. So we just love you all. Merry Christmas. And so this week is Advent week three. Next week, Shane is doing Advent week four. Christmas Eve, we will light that fifth candle for our Christmas Eve Advent, Advent series. So I appreciate you taking time to come here and think and celebrate and contemplate and worship with God and others. So let's bow our heads and take a moment and pray. God, I just, this is a visited planet, God. We are lucky to be able to spend time together and worship you this morning through songs and through prayer and through contemplation and through the way we live. Um, this is a visited planet, God. You've been very good to us um, up to this point in our life. We can trust you're going to be good to us the rest of our lives. Lord, this is a visited planet, Lord, where you sent your son, Jesus, that visited this planet through the birth of a virgin teenage mom in Bethlehem. That is an amazing birth story that we're going to look at today. We just want to worship you, appreciate you, admire you, and let you and your example form the rest of our worldview. We just commit this time to you, pray that the Word of God would come alive in our lives, and that we would respond rightly to the Word of God. We'd listen rightly to the Word of God. We'd listen to understand and listen to obey the Word of God. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. In Luke 8, Luke 2, verse 8 we're going to pick up in verse 8, but I'm going to tell you the quick backstory to the birth story. Verses 1 and 2, we talk about the Caesar who was leading the known world at that time, who was occupying the nation of Israel. Mary and Joseph lived under the Roman rule. They required all of the people to go back to their, their, their hometown to register for a census so they can tax people. All right, so taxes is what got Mary and Joseph mobilized 80 miles on back of a donkey Mary on the back of a donkey, nine months pregnant. And as the miles went by, the reality, the cold, grim reality of that cold winter day was that she is going to most likely, as a young teenage mom, give birth to the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world, her personal Savior, away from her friends and family. And the only one that's going to birth that baby is this man she's engaged to, Joseph. Last week, Barry looked at Mary's magnificent, her praise, her worshipful praise to God, and how Mary was 
contemplating what God has done when the angel came to her and told her that she would carry and give birth to God. Her husband-to-be, Joseph, was a young man himself. She was also incredibly young, probably a young teenage mom. And she's carrying the Savior of the world. 80 miles on the back of a donkey, they arrive in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is an extremely poor, impoverished part of the nation of Israel at this time. And the best case scenario, best case scenario, if they land in the manger in time, the manger, the, the communal hospital hostess place in time would have been maybe not as big as our stage. And there would have been like six to eight stalls with some privacy, with a middle hearth. The owner of the inn would have had a hearth of like fire to keep everyone warm and straw to keep everyone's livestock uh, bedded. That's why the supply. That was like very primitive housekeeping, if it went well, but it did not go well. And so Mary and Joseph did not have space there. And so the cold reality of that winter's night was just that the, the, the contempt, the, the obscurity of these young, poor couple that is getting pulled around by powerful forces beyond their control, they had to go and look for shelter. And there was nowhere. They couldn't get birthed in the, the town square. They couldn't get birthed there in a cold winter night having a baby in the middle of the town square. So they eventually find their way to this barn-cave hybrid where Jesus is born. Luke nicely calls it a manger. It is a barn that the Savior of the world is born into. It is a wild story of Christians' claim that God became the Messiah. He was not Jesus who became the Messiah who became God, like Caesar was a man who became Caesar who became God. God, he was God's son, fully man and fully God, came and visited this planet. I just, just think of all the, if you're Joseph, you would feel like a failure. I did not care for my wife well. I did not care for the Messiah, the Savior of mankind well. I am a failure as a parent. Think of all the insecurities of a young teenage mom having birth. Having, you know, think of like your birth plan. If those of you who've had babies, you did not, you would never think, nine months pregnant, we're going 80 miles on the back of a donkey when I'm nine months pregnant. I can pop any day. And my husband doesn't have a place for us lined up. And you're giving birth among the ammonia, the manure, the animal smells in a small little barn. And it's cold. Think of like the rough carpenter hands or of uneducated, illiterate Joseph and Mary. And it's cold and there's a slippery, bloody wet little baby getting born. You're just trying to keep him warm. You're thinking God's going to die. This is going to die in this manger as a newborn baby. All the insecurities of a teenage mom. It is wild. The beginning of Christian faith. The beginning of the Christian story of how Jesus came to this planet. Extremely poor couple. They were unknown and unseen by their people, but God saw them. We see here in Luke 2. And God knew them and had a plan for them. The proud and the powerful God did not choose, choose to visit this planet through par- proud and powerful people, but he chose to come to this planet through poor and powerless people. This is just an emotional, emotionally loaded birth story for Mary and Joseph. As they came, as they came to Bethlehem with all the, the fear, the insecurities of any young couple with a baby, and then giving birth to such a high-stakes birth. And that's where we pick up in Luke 2, verse 8. Luke 2, verses 8. Think about, think about Jesus' perspective. He's standing at the pinnacle of the known and the unknown world, in the heights of heaven. 
and he takes a dive off and he goes down to the lowest of the low, to a barn in Bethlehem to a teenage mom where he enters the scenes of mankind. This is just a wild event. And when you read over this passage, you can read over this passage multiple times in your life and there's always new and compelling things that hit you from these passages of the Bible. The depth and color of this passage of the Bible is amazing. I love Kent Hughes. He's a biblical scholar and author. Author. He talks about this. He says, we must never forget that this is where Christianity begins and where it always begins with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself set an example comes to the needy. And that's the title of this passage. I titled it Sympathizer and Savior. We're looking at Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. Every Advent season, we're reminded of the reality of the wonder of God becoming a man and visiting this planet in all of his weakness so that we might have a relationship with him. The infinite God became a finite baby, but all the while remaining an infinite God. It's an amazingly humble story about only God could have or would have worked out in the history of mankind. The wonders of God's rescue plan for mankind beginning in a barn in Bethlehem a sympathizer and savior. Many of you have heard of, or you've heard of this Jesus who is the savior of mankind. But the reality is Jesus is more than just a savior of mankind. He's able to sympathize with the plight, with the struggle, with the weakness of mankind, although he himself never sinned. Jesus can deeply sympathize with the experience of being a human and the hustle and the struggle and the hard parts of life. Jesus can sympathize with your weakness. Look at Hebrews 4. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. His name is Jesus Christ. He's a savior of the world, and he's a sympathizer of mankind. So let's look at Luke 2, verse 8. The story moves quickly. Follow along with me. Luke 2, verses 8. I pick up here. It says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Which is natural. There's shepherds out in the field watching sheep. It's not a very eventful job, especially at night. The sheep are probably all bedded down and sleeping in an area. There's probably a little bit of noise coming from the flock. You're, you're basically watching paint dry. You're watching sheep sleep. And then all around you, the glory of the Lord shines around you in this desolate little country field. The glory of the Lord, we see this throughout the Bible in different times. Moses experienced the glory of the Lord. He talked about seeing God's face, and God said, you cannot see my face and live in Exodus 33. Exodus 40, it talks about the glory of the God resting on their tabernacle. Exodus, uh, Ezekiel 8 and 10 talks about the glory of God leaving the nation of Israel. The glory of the Lord coming and going has been an amazing, powerful, pivotal thing in the nation of Israel's history. And 600 years later, the glory of the Lord came back. And it came back to who? To Moses, to the tabernacle, to the temple dedication, to the nation. It came back to shepherds. The glory of the Lord came back to shepherds. Our, our culture's view of shepherds does not matter. That culture's view of shepherds, they viewed shepherds like thieves, like lowlifes, like riffraff, the social, socially very low class as untrustworthy scoundrels of the day. If you couldn't get a job doing something else, the shepherds would hire you. If you had a criminal record, the shepherds will hire you. If, you. if you're a corrupt con man, well, the shepherds will take you. Shepherds were the lowest ranking people in that culture at that day. Shepherds were not highly respected at all, especially by the law. If you had a legal dispute as a Jewish person, 
and you knew something happened. Someone stole something or someone murdered someone and you knew a shepherd saw, you could not call a shepherd as a witness in court. There were illegit witnesses in court. Social class views viewed one notch of people lower than shepherds. And that was people that had leprosy. One notch above leopards is shepherds. These are not prominent, powerful, influential movers and shakers of the day. These are the least and the lost among the nation of Israel. It's not even the day shift of shepherds. This is the night shift of shepherds. I'm having fun. They're probably the same shift of people, but the night shift. You're like, what about night shift, Mike? I'm just having fun. All right, moving on. Think about this does, this does echo what the whole New Testament church experienced, and especially what we have experienced, those who've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the weak. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We can identify with those shepherds. Those shepherds, should, should, you should feel like you have a place among the shepherds <laughs> as we hear this story. And then we pick up here in verse 10. And then the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which our Advent candle was about today. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel there suddenly with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace here in this passage means wholeness or well-being for those who have been favored by God. We look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So you notice a multitude of heavenly hosts. Normally in the Bible, you'll see one or two angels because they're scary beings. They're frightful and terrifying. Even like the most prominent generals in the biblical history of the nation of Israel are terrified. They're mortified when they come face to face with an angel. Normally you'll see one or two. But in this story, Luke describes that we see the entire Legion army host of heaven gets seemed to get emptied out, scholars think, to show up to watch God becoming a man, to Jesus to go to the lowest of the low and enter the scenes of mankind. This is earth-shaking news. This is heaven-making news. And all of heavenly angels showed up. The entire heavenly army was emptied to see the feet of Jesus becoming a man. And the angels tell the shepherds, the lowest of the low, that God is saving not only the nation of Israel, but the whole world. This is good news for the whole world. And the whole world, through this Messiah's life, the glory of God is shining all around these shepherds in this little quiet country field, this desolate countryside. And then the angels break out into worship. I bet it was amazing worship. I bet it was just awesome. I don't know if you let your mind dwell here for a minute, but our Christmas songs are good. I'm glad we're singing them. I hope we sing more of them as we keep going here. I bet this was an amazing worship full time of angels singing. This is a big deal. We as Christians should make Christmas a big deal in our lives. It's not just a little another holiday. You know, we can't have Thanksgiving, 
Halloween, Christmas, just be all the same. Christmas is a big deal. You should celebrate God. You should play Christmas music at home. Play some good old school Christmas hymns at home. Those good ones. Amen? Come on, Shane and Shane has a great Christmas hymn thing. There's some amazing Christmas music out there. I'm not talking like a baby it's cold outside or, you know, those, 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 I mean, there's some great Christmas songs out there. So you got to get those and crank those in the car, people. And you Christmas, anti-Christmas people, look at this uh, angel situation and you just contemplate, you know, if the angels of heaven show up and they worship God when he gets born, we can worship God when he's born. This is a, this is a light ask. There's an exclamation park, the exclamation mark on this passage, and we should have that in our lives as Christians, the rest of our lives, celebrating, worshiping Christmas, worshiping God, visiting this planet during Christmas time in our season of life. God, the angels showed up to see what? That God loves us so much that he'd sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, to be born in a barn in Bethlehem. That is, that is like, compared to where he came from to where he is now, that is quite the contrast. Why? So that we might have a relationship, reconciliation, forgiveness for our sins. We can have a right standing with God. And then after the angels leave the scene, we see the shepherds. And I get, that, I get what they did. Naturally, they wanted to see all what the angels and the heavenly commotion was about. And they took off. I imagine they took off running uh, to find out where this Jesus Messiah was born. Um, they were jumping low fences. There's probably dogs barking in the night. They probably sparked, start, you know, startled a few animals as they're running. They go and they run to that little primitive inn. And there's no couple, no baby in that primitive inn. They hear that they left. They go look in the town square. There's no couple in the town square. And then finally they hear and find Mary and Joseph in the cave barn hybrid. The shepherds finally find the Messiah. The Messiah. They find the sympathizer of sinners, a savior of sinners being born in Bethlehem. And you know what? They're probably relieved. They're probably dramatically relieved that Jesus that they can go and see this Messiah. Because it's not like a, you know, a wealthy hospital. It's not like a prominent political person's house. It's not a rich man's house that they're born into. Jesus is in a space that they can be. They can go and have access to the Messiah. They can go to this barn. Nothing fancy about here. They have access to the barn, and all are welcome in the barn. All are welcome in the manger. Shepherds are probably wide-eyed and panting, out of breath, just run a mile or more, and this awkward run into this young mom who just gave birth to a baby. The baby's probably crying. There's probably blood and fluids and animal manure and ammonia. And if you would have smelled that barn, for especially you city folks, if you would have smelled that barn in the winter, it'll stick with you, that smell. I bet they awkwardly asked to hold the Messiah, the baby. I bet they awkwardly asked his teenage mom to hold the baby. I bet the first person to hold Jesus and see Jesus, other than mom and dad, was probably a shepherd. The lowest of the low, the social outcast, the riffraff, the least of these in the society. Jesus would later call himself the good shepherd. The first person that held him was probably a smelly shepherd that had no social clout among their peers. And we see here in this passage, the first convert to believe in the Messiah and go and evangelize about him is these shepherds. This isn't a warm and fuzzy, sterile hallmark story. This is a story that is anything but sterile. This birth story of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, is filled with humanity 
and a sovereign God sending a sympathetic Savior. If I were a betting man, I would have predicted that the Messiah would enter mankind's history, something like a prominent, wealthy, influential, political, powerful person would have a full-grown, bearded, full-headed hair God-man walk into the scene. I would have never have envisioned a teenage mom born out of wedlock from an angel visiting her in a barn in Bethlehem. This is the most anticipated event in human history among the nation of Israel, and they missed it. Think of Buddha. Buddha's mom was a queen. Muhammad's parents were prominent, respectful political leaders. And Vishnu's parent was a god. The savior of the world, the Christian faith, is first told to the least and the lowest among the social class. To uneducated, poor, illiterate, teenage mom, and Joseph, and shepherds. That's who the angels went to. And that's the first people to experience and see and do business with God, is the least of these. The Savior of the Christian faith, the Savior of mankind, is able to sympathize with every single sinner. In verse 17, read with me, it says, And then they saw it, this is the shepherds, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They begin, they start evangelizing. The first converts, the first evangelist of this Messiah. Verse 19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it was had been told them. So they were looking at an incredibly anticipated event in the nation of Israel's history. They spent 2,000-some years as a nation looking forward to the coming Messiah. This is the most anticipated event in the nation's history up till then. And what happened? The people of God missed God. How does that happen? How do we miss God as people that are supposedly God's people looking for God? How does God visit this planet, the Messiah come, and the nation of Israel miss it? Well, the big thing that you need to understand is the Bible talks about two Advents, two comings of Christ. Advent 1, we're reading about today. You're familiar with. Advent 2 is the second time Jesus comes back. And what happens is Advent 2 is way different than Advent 1. Advent 1, it's meek, mild, least, lost, the lowest of low, the poor. He comes in quietly and you know, wrapped in blood and little scraps of cloth, and he leaves wrapped in blood and scraps of cloth. And he dies. And a birth is filled with shame and disrespect what happened to him in contempt for mankind, and he dies the same exact way. He comes and goes and shakes the world from the ground up. The second advent, Jesus is coming back, he's going to come and shake the world from the top down. Jesus is going to come rip the sky open. Every enemy of God will bow. Every tongue will confess that God is Lord. He will rip and rule over this entire planet, burn it down, and create a new kingdom. God's second advent is in the Bible, and the first advent is in the Bible. And we didn't know as people, which was first. We kind of washed over the first advent because you don't want to dwell there. <laughs> Baby in a manger, teenage parents. Our glory-craving hearts do not enjoy that story. We crave the second story. Like this, the passage in uh, Daniel 7 talking about he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The people of the nation of Israel confused the first and the second advent. 
They got the timelines mixed up. But as we conclude this story, and what do we walk away? What can we take away from this story? Jesus is born where no child should be born. He's born in a barn, a rebranded version of manger. The God of the universe is laid to rest in a feeding trough, and his first visitors are shepherds. There's no glory in this story, no dignity in this story. We all have stories. We all have sacred stories, stories that have imprinted you and defined you and become part of who you are and your testimony, stories that you carry for the rest of your life. Nothing about Jesus' birth story says glory, power, God flexing on the enemies of God, the strength of God put on display for all of mankind. Instead, you see the meek, humble God who came to reach the least and the lost in a discreet corner of the world. But this birth story has implications for the rest of us. This passage, there's principles in this passage we should be leaning into. And the first main principle I'd like you to hold on to this morning as you go out of here is sympathy precedes savings. Sympathy precedes savings. I was reading in Psalm 76 this last week, verses 22 through 26. It says this, Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me up to, in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is a strength in my heart, my portion forever. I remember writing this verse down in college. I read this last week, but I read it also in college. And I wrote it down like, that is a heartwarming, fuzzy, nice story. Later that day, I got a call that my cousin got in a car accident. He was dying. And I got to go visit him in the hospital bed. And he was brain dead. And they were going to unplug him. And he was going to go and be with the Lord. He's a young 15-some-year-old, 16-year-old young man. And I shared this verse with him. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God has a strength in my heart. I portion it forever. In life, your flesh will fail you. Your strength will leave you. And you will die and stand before a holy and just God on judgment day. And who do you have on heaven but Jesus? Who do you have here on earth that truly got your back but Jesus? God's sympathy compelled our Savior to leave the heights of heaven and come to the lowest of low, the least of these, and come and share that hopeful, saving message of all of mankind. Your flesh is and will fail you. Your heart will and is failing you. But God is the strength of your heart, your portion forever. You have a real Savior, a sympathetic Savior who loves you and cares about you, has literal physical skin in the game. He's lived this life here so you can live your life there. The real Savior of the world was not Caesar or a political figure or a high-powered leader. The Savior of the world is Jesus, the great sympathizer with the struggles of sinners, although he did not sin. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died the death on the cross none of us would ever wish upon our enemies, was punished for our sins, rose from the dead, and lived the perfect life for us when we failed. And now he stands glorified at the right hand of God. We have a friend of sinners, a sympathizer of sinners. We have a sympathetic Savior. He, was, he lived and experienced life here on earth, was familiar with the suffering of mankind. Think of, I mentioned this earlier, think of the beginning of his life and the end of his life. They're bookmarked by shame, by scandal, by humiliation, and by man's contempt. As he bled out on a cross and as he was born by this couple in this barn. 
It is an amazing, humble story of how God doesn't care about our social structures or our social rankings. He plays by a completely different set of rules of his truth and his power and his righteousness does not care what we think is prominent and influential. Wealth is a joke to God. You know, being politically powerful or popular is a joke to God. He sympathizes with everyone. We have a sympathetic Savior. Jesus came and left this world with a few scraps of cloth on And God chose to use this God-man's simple and profound life to shake mankind to the core with a Christian core message that God came to save us, all of us that are humble enough to receive him. Wise men still seek him. The least and lost still find him. And those who have desperate dependence on him still find him. Proud hearts still miss him. Learned minds are still ignorant of him. And independent hearts still scoff at the idea of dependence on him. The story is so true today. Look at, look at this quote. My, one of my brother's co-pastors at his church, Billy Johnson, shared this quote a couple of weeks ago at their church. He says this, Jesus, the mighty God, protects us from our internal enemy, the flesh. He protects us from our external enemy, the world. And he protects us from our eternal enemy, Satan. Our flesh, the world, and Satan. Jesus has done business with all three, and he's defeated all three for you. When the flesh defeats you, Jesus defeated the flesh. When the world defeats you, Jesus defeated the world. And when the eternal enemy would have his stake on your life and defeat you, Jesus defeated our eternal enemy, Satan. Men and women, we have a sympathetic Savior who can sympathize with our plight here and our plight there. And he's going to usher us from here to there forgiving us, reconciling us, and all the wrongs we've done in our life. That is an amazing thing to be merry about this year. The next main principle from this passage, or reflecting on this passage, humility precedes glory. This is the pattern we see in Scripture. God's upside-down kingdom is defined by humble, humility, low, meek, that precedes glory, power, and strength. Mark 10, 31 says, first will be last and the last will be first. James, Jesus' brother, said this in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Someone found that verse and started quoting it to me in college and they didn't stop. I have a love-hate relationship with that verse because I was a very proud man. God and the Bible and life humbled me in a lot of ways. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In James 10, 4, 10, it says this, humble yourselves. To the Lord, for in due time he will exalt you. Humility precedes glory. We see this in Jesus' life, we see this in our lives. Find the Savior of the world in an animal feeding trough surrounded by manure, shepherds, and a teenage parents brought our brings our glory craving hearts to a knee. Our glory craving hearts that just love glory. We do not love this story. We have trouble with this story. We want to move on quickly. We don't want to dwell here in this reality. That's how God came to visit us. This planet, we want to move quickly on to parties and presence and move our heart off of this. But it's good for our heart to dwell here, that humility precedes glory. God notices humble people. God gets excited when he sees humble people. God gets excited when he sees humility in you and in I. God works exclusively with humble people. Matthew Henry pastored a church in like small town, I think it's England, and he got multiple job offers to go to the big city and pastor bigger churches. He turned them all down. He stuck with his little country church. He wrote this about this passage. He says, But when we, by faith, view the Son of God 
being made man and lying in a manger, our vanity, our ambition, our envy are checked. And we cannot, with this right, right object, object rightly before us, see great things for ourselves. It's kind of like a young athlete showing all this promise, a young amateur athlete, all this potential, all this promise, like an adolescent athlete sitting next to their parents, and in walks in, you know, Adidas and Under Armour and Nike and Puma, all wanting them to sign over exclusive contract rights to be their brand and rep them, wearing their merch, being on their advertisements. It's kind of like that. There's a young Christian with so much promise, so much hype about what they'll do with their walk of God and their public ministry what they might and will accomplish in their lives. In walks in Team Technology, saying, if you bow down and sign exclusive rights to Team Tech, you'll go viral, you'll get a lot of likes, a lot of shares. Right behind them comes in Team Influencer, saying popularity and fame, we control it, we'll make you a popularity, fame, full Christian influencer. Right behind them comes in Team Gifting, which is a rebrand of Team Pride. Look at how gifted they are. They're such a singer, such a dancer, such a joke teller, such a preacher. Team gifting comes walking into young Christians. And then in comes in team network. Oh, this person's network to this person, this person. They have jobs, options here and here and here. Team mankind's network. But team humble comes in, gentle and lovely, with a contract slid across the table, asking for exclusive rights. And Jesus is the team captain of team humble. Hashtag team humble. Men and women, humility precedes glory in the kingdom of God. It's true in Jesus' life, and it has to be, and it will be true in our life. See, the gospel is for everyone. The meek, the humble, the obscure, the lowly. And this, this Jesus' birth is the first shot across the bow of the ship of the enemies of God, the world, the devil, and the flesh, sin and Satan. All of them will bow knee to Jesus. There's a solution to mankind's ancient problem, our sin. And you only see the solution when you're humble. The gospel has permeated the entire society and will permeate the entire society, and it starts at the bottom and works its way up. It starts with humble people, shepherds, people who are outcast, thought lowly of, people who there's no room for them in the end, no room for them in the cool kid party. Jesus, there's room for you in that barn of Jesus. We have a great sympathizer and a great savior who was born to us this day. And we get to worship that and remind ourselves of that and, rem and remember we have so much to be grateful for as a people who are redeemed, ransomed, and bought back. Amen? Amen. Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's bow our heads and pray as Lincoln comes up and ends out our time here. God, I thank you for, I thank you for Luke's words to us. I thank you for what he highlights and what he emphasizes and he reminds us of. I ask God that you would just Give us wisdom for how to live. Help us to be truly humble people. Help us to be people that are sympathetic of people. I pray that you just use us in a way to reach our friends and our family. Uh, just give us wisdom for how to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.